on the 18th of March is our wild game dinner. And we've got a special treat in that we've got Zeke Pfeiffer coming all the way from Nebraska for this. He's going to get on a plane, fly to State College. We're going to pick him up. We're going to bring him to the event. If you are at all thinking about whether to come or not, I want to encourage you do come and invite another guy to come with you guys. Okay, Take one of those orange uh, tickets from, um, from Andy and go after some of your hunting buddies. We're especially looking for guys who don't know Jesus already as their Savior. Because Zeke is specifically coming, planning to talk about the gospel, as he said last week in the, the special message. Zeke's going to be with us the next morning for church, so we're all going to get to meet him, and he's going to preach for us on Sunday morning the 19th as well. So if you can't be there Saturday night, or you don't care about hunting stories, which I totally understand, some of you don't, come on Sunday morning and Zeke will be sharing from the Word of God. Zeke's an EFCA pastor out in Central City, Nebraska, and he's got some interesting stories to tell. I've been reading his book, uh, In Pursuit, Devotions for the Hunter and Fisherman, and I, I read this this morning, I thought I would share it with you. When we direct our appreciation towards something that is truly worthy, we experience pleasure from the act of praise. For example, it feels good to savor and celebrate a juicy, tender prime rib. Admiring a snow-capped mountain range or a beautiful sunset is meaningful, and it's rewarding to celebrate a lifelong friend for his loyalty. We're singing praises in all three examples and finding great pleasure and happiness in doing so. Why? Because these objects are worthy of our praise and praiseworthy objects, and to praise worthy objects is pleasurable. Likewise, God is worthy, infinitely worthy. He's immeasurably powerful, lovely, mysterious, wild, and alluring. He is the embodiment and definition of majesty and power. Everything we see in nature that is rugged or breathtakingly beautiful reflects God's creative mind. The fact that God chose us and gave us grace that we might praise Him is a tremendous gift to us. We get to enjoy His grace. We also get to enjoy praising Him for it. Amen? So come, uh, make plans to hear, hear Pastor Zeke at both our wild game dinner at church on the, the 19th. And now I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 23. The end of 2 Kings, the 23rd chapter, starting on verse 31, which you can find on Pew Bible page 386. Pew Bible page 386, so if you don't have your own Bible, grab one of those black books in the rack in front of you and turn to page 386. Look for the big number 23 and the small number 31. This morning we're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 23, the end of 2 Kings 23, through chapter 24, and then through chapter 25 to the very end of 2 Kings. Last week I got some applause when I announced the end of our series on 2 Kings. And the ornery mischievous part of me, which is actually a rather large part of me, thought that this week I should announce the beginning of a new sermon series on First and Second Chronicles, starting next week, so that we could go through all the kings of Israel and Judah one more time, but from a different perspective. But that ornery part of me did not win. We are not going to take up Chronicles at this point. I reserve the right to return to Chronicles at a later time. I don't blame anybody for being ready to move on. We've been in the books of Kings now for 30 messages. On and off now for 11 months, from the first Sunday of April, 2016, to the first Sunday of March, 2017. 
And all of that times, the books of Kings have been particularly repetitive. There's a broken record playing throughout the books of Kings. And as we've said, the song on that record is not, for the most part, a happy one. This book is, after all, a tragedy. It does not have a happy ending. Today we're going to read the ending, and it is not a happy one. In fact, I think it would be easy to argue that these chapters chronicle the saddest event in Israel's history between the fall in Genesis 3 and the trial of Jesus Christ. These are the worst days of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. These are the days when the southern kingdom called Judah went into exile, went into captivity away from her land. That's 2 Kings 25-21. Judah went into captivity away from her land. This tragic day has been coming for a very long time. If you think about it, ever since Abraham was given the promises of offspring, land, and blessing, the story of Israel was on the rise. Fourteen years ago, in 2003, we began studying this big story of the Old Testament. And in Genesis, we saw the promises be fulfilled slowly, but surely. Offspring. Right? At the end of the book of Genesis, there's 70 of them. Right? From these old people, Abraham and Sarah, who who shouldn't have been able to have kids. They have 70 of them by the end of the book. And then the people grew and grew. And the Lord blessed them. But by, by the beginning of Exodus, there's hundreds of thousands of them, right? And they're on their way out of Egypt. And they're headed towards the promised land. That's what happens in the book of Numbers. They, they marched to the promised land. And God promised them, when He gave them the law, that if they were a thumbs-up people, if they obeyed the covenant, that He would continue to bless them. And they would possess the land. They'd possess those promises. And then in Joshua, they actually began to possess the land. They marched in Jericho and they started taking over the land. And then the downward spiral began, the book of Judges. There were bright spots along the way like Ruth and Boaz and even Samuel. But they were never quite what they ought to be. They they weren't keeping this. Law, this covenant the way they were supposed to. And the threat of exile began to gather like storm clouds on the horizon. God gave them a king after his own heart in David. And then David's son was given wisdom and a glorious golden kingdom. That was the high point of the fulfillment of all of these promises so far. And then it began to unravel. The kingdom was torn in two. Everything we've read now for the last year happened. The two kingdoms went up and down. The northern kingdom much faster down than the southern kingdom, but both of them failing to keep the covenant. Always God has a remnant. He's always at work caring for His people. We saw that in Elijah and Elisha and every thumbs up king. But the slide has been ever, ever downward. And now we've reached the bottom. Last week we read about one of those bright spots along the way. Godly King Josiah, who led a biblical reformation in Judah. But even his biblical godliness was not enough to stem the tide of what was to come. And now he's dead. And his son, Jehoahaz, has become king. 
In less than 25 years from Josiah's death, Judah will have run through four bad kings and the whole nation will be destroyed. This is that sad story. Would you pray with me? And then we'll wade into this sad story together. Let's pray. Father, apparently we need sad stories too. They situate us. They help us understand where we've come from. They give us a sense of longing and a sense of what's wrong with the world and with us. And they get us ready for the good news. The bad news, the bad story gets us ready to receive the good news. So I pray, Father, that you would do that this morning as we study your holy, inerrant, inspired word. Take us deep into this story, Lord. Help us to feel it and know it. And then change us, Lord. Because we've read it. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The title of today's message is The Table of the King. And I'm not going to explain that. At least until the very end of our message. I ask you to hang with me and I will explain the title when we get to the very end. I don't think you'll be surprised by what we learned today of what we can apply in this passage to our lives. I have four headings that I want to tell this story under, and they should all be very familiar for those who have tracked with me throughout this sermon series. If you've been here for 11 months, you've heard these phrases again and again. They're all things we've talked about throughout the books of Kings. Here's the first one. The eyes of the Lord. What matters most in any given situation is God's evaluation of it, the eyes of the Lord. We've seen that phrase again and again, haven't we, as we've studied the books of 1 and 2 Kings, the eyes of the Lord. It appears here in the second verse, verse 32. Let's read 2 Kings 23, 31 and 32. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. His mother's name was Hamutal, daughter of Jeremiah. She was from Libna. Here's our question. Thumbs up or thumbs down? He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his fathers had done. How many times over the last 11 months have we asked the question, thumbs up or thumbs down? Can't count them. It's like a broken record. Unfortunately, the rest of these kings of Judah are all thumbs down. There are no more good ones in Judah, and there are no more ones at all in Israel. This one only makes it three months. Why is he thumbs down? It's not because he wasn't smart. It's not because he wasn't politically savvy. It's not because he didn't have good ideas about how to run a big organization like a country. It's not because he lacked royal skills. It's because, verse 32, he did evil... In the eyes of the Lord. That's why he's thumbs down. His great-grandpa Manasseh ruled for 55 years. He must have been pretty good at the king thing. But he was thumbs down too. Because he didn't do his one job in the eyes of the Lord. He had just one job. Covenant faithfulness. And he didn't do it. It's what God thinks about you or me or about anything that is the most important thing. Doesn't matter what the world thinks. 
Doesn't matter what our friends think. Doesn't matter what our co-workers think. Doesn't matter what our family thinks. It doesn't even really matter what we think. Like it matters what God thinks. What really matters in life is how things stand in the eyes of the Lord. If we truly get that, we will live differently. Amen? What if all you cared about, ultimately, was the Lord's opinion? And you lived for Him and for Him alone. That's how Jesus lived. He wasn't controlled by anything, but bringing glory to His Father whom He loved. So often I'm controlled by what I think other people think of me. Right? That's a powerful force. I think what other people think of me, and I do what I do because I want to make them happy. What if all I ultimately cared about? I love them, but I'm not controlled by them. What if all I thought about was what God thinks about. That's how Jesus lived. Remember, when these kings are at their best, they remind us of King Jesus. But not Jehoahaz. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his fathers had done. Not his father, not his biological father, not his daddy. King Josiah had been two thumbs up. But Jehoahaz went the way of so many of the rest of his forefathers. And continued their thumbs down ways. Look at verse 33. Pharaoh Necho put him in chains at Riblah in the land of Hamath so that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he imposed on Judah a levy of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, son of Josiah, king in place of his father Josiah, and changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz and carried him off to Egypt, and there he died. Here's how bad things have gotten. The king of Egypt is now deciding who will be the king of Judah. Jehoahaz is out, and his brother renamed Jehoiakim is in. And Jehoiakim is a real stinker. If you want to know how bad Jehoiakim is, then read the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is prophesying during this same time period. To really get the flavor for this, you read Jeremiah at the same time. Jehoiakim is living under Necho's thumb and levies a great big tax on the Jewish people to pay this levy, but he still finds enough money in the budget to build a big palace for himself. And Jehoiakim is not afraid to kill prophets if they say things he doesn't like. And Jehoiakim tears up the Word of God. Rip, rip, and he throws him into the fire to keep himself warm. He's nothing like his dad Josiah. Verse 35, Jehoiakim paid Pharaoh Necho the silver and gold he demanded. In order to do so, he taxed the land and exacted the silver and gold from the people of the land according to their assessments. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. His mother's name was Zebedah, daughter of Padiah. She was from Rumah and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord just as his fathers had done. So that's the first thing that we're going to see. I'm I'm going to show you the second thing we're going to see. I'm willing to bet that some of you could nail it if I just gave you a second. It's the Word of the Lord. How many times have we seen that phrase as we work through the books of Kings? God has promised some things. God has said some things. And those things will happen. For certain, you can count on it, the word of the Lord. Look at chapter 24, verse 1. 
During Jehoiakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded the land and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. But then he changed his mind and rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord sent Babylonian, Aramean, Moabite, and Ammonite raiders against him. He sent them to destroy Judah in accordance with the word of the Lord, proclaimed by his servants, the prophets. See, this is just what God had said. God had promised, remember last week, Huldah? God had promised that Judah will be destroyed, and he will see to it that it happens just as he said. By the way, this is where Daniel and his friends get taken into captivity in Babylon. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or as we know them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were taken into captivity during this failed reign of King Jehoiakim. Things got really bad. But it wasn't because Nebuchadnezzar was so powerful. It's because the Lord had threatened, which is a kind of promise, that this would happen. Verse 3. Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command. In order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh and all that he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord was not willing to forgive. They had reached the limit of God's long-suffering patience. And God had to keep His promises because God is faithful. All of those things that God had said He would do in Deuteronomy, if the nation forsook Him and broke the covenant, He had to do those things or He wouldn't have been faithful to His end of the covenant. See, we should be glad that God keeps His threats because it's another proof that God is faithful to His promises. One of the biggest themes that runs through the whole Old Testament, we've seen it again and again, is that God always keeps His promises. He doesn't ever say, yeah, I know I promised that, but JK, just kidding. And if He never carried out His threats, it would bring His faithfulness into dubiety. So it's good news for us. But it was bad news for Jehoiakim and Judah. Verse 5, As for the other events of Jehoiakim's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? Jehoiakim rested with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, his son, succeeded him as king. Verse 7. The king of Egypt did not march out from his own country again because the king of Babylon had taken all his territory from the wadi of Egypt to the Euphrates River. By the way, that's called the Battle of Carchemish. You might have heard about it in your world history classes when you were in school. It's kind of a big deal in in world history. Egypt never recovered from that. Nebuchadnezzar was now the big dog of the whole region. Verse 8. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. His mother's name was Nehushta, daughter of Elnathan. She was from Jerusalem. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord just as his father had done. At that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And Nebuchadnezzar himself came up to the city while his officers were besieging it. Jehoiachin, king of Judah, his mother, his attendants, his nobles, and his officials all surrendered to him. In the eighth year of the reign of the king of Babylon, he took Jehoiachin prisoner. By the way, this is when the prophet Ezekiel was taken into captivity himself. If you ever wonder how Ezekiel fits into this, this is the time period for Ezekiel. Why did all these bad things happen to them? 
surrender to the king of Babylon. Is the king of Babylon a, a godly king, one that you would love to be under? No. Why did this happen? Was it, was it because Babylon was so great? Was it because of random chance? Verse 13, as the Lord had declared. It's because of the word of the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar removed all the treasures from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and took away all the gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple of the Lord. Do you remember all that gold from Solomon's temple that we saw? How it just everything shone, gold everywhere, it's all gone. Every little piece of gold is gone. He carried into exile all Jerusalem. All the officers and fighting men and all the craftsmen and artisans, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest people of the land were left. Imagine if your whole city had to get up and leave. Leave your homes and go into slavery, go into exile, live away into captivity. Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiachin captive to Babylon. Remember that, we'll come back to that. He also took from Jerusalem to Babylon the king's mother, his wives, his officials, and the leading men of the land. The king of Babylon also deported to Babylon the entire force of 7,000 fighting men, strong and fit for war, and a 1,000 craftsmen and artisans. And now he makes the decision about who the king of Judah will be. The king of Babylon decides who will be the king of Judah. Verse 17, he made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. His mother's name was Hamutal, daughter of Jeremiah. She was from Libna. Ready for this? You ready? Here's the very last one. Thumbs up or thumbs down? He did evil in the eyes of the Lord just as Jehoiakim had done. It was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah. And in the end, He thrust them from His presence. Here's number three. The anger of the Lord. All of this did not happen to Judah because Babylon was so great. If God had said, Babylon, you're out. Judah, you're up. That's what would have happened. It happened because God was so angry. Righteously angry, justly angry, perfectly virtuously angry. See, we have trouble with the anger of God because our anger often goes so wrong. We're not familiar with righteous anger as a category. We don't see it very often. But God does anger perfectly. And this was His perfect, righteous anger at work. Now you need to know that Zedekiah was a wimpy king. He was one of those who put a finger into the wind to decide what to, what to do. He was one of those guys. He was evil like, he wasn't evil like Jehoiakim or Manasseh, but he was evil because he just did what he thought was politically expedient, not what was righteous. For example, the last sentence here of verse 20 of 24, now Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And that sounds good, doesn't it? But if you read the book of Jeremiah, you find out that that's the exact opposite of what God had told Zedekiah to do through the prophet Jeremiah. God had told him to submit to Babylon. So, of course, Zedekiah does the opposite. 
And then the flood of judgment comes. Why? Because of the anger of God. Chapter 25. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. That's two years, right? From the ninth year to the eleventh year, two years of siege. And you think it's kind of getting everything ready for one of those last second escapes or rescues like the angel of the Lord and Sennacherib? No angel of the Lord, no Sennacherib, no 185,000 people killed in one night. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden. Though the Babylonians were surrounding the city, they tried to get away. They fled towards the Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, where sentence was pronounced on him. You've seen the movie. He's down on his knees, right? They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And it was the last thing he ever saw. Then they put out his eyes. Bound him with bronze shackles and took him to Babylon. On the seventh day of the fifth month of the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, an official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord. The royal palace and all the houses of Jerusalem, every important building he burned down. Remember when they built the temple? And all that it stood for, the very presence of God, symbolizing the presence of God, they are being thrust out of his presence. He's left town. And they are being forced out too. Verse 10. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. The Buzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city along with the rest of the populace and those who had gone over to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and fields. And they dismantled the temple. The Babylonians broke up the bronze pillars, the movable stands of the bronze sea that were at the temple of the Lord, and they carried the bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, shovels, wick trimmers, dishes, and all the bronze articles used in the temple service. The commander of the imperial guard took away the censers and sprinkling bowls, all that were made of pure gold and silver. Remember when Hezekiah was showing this stuff off to the officials from Babylon? They're like, yeah, someday we're going to come and Repossess those things. The bronze from the two pillars, the sea and the movable stands which Solomon had made for the temple of the Lord was more than could be weighed. Each pillar was 27 feet high. The bronze capital on top of one pillar was four and a half feet high and was decorated with a network and pomegranates of bronze all around. The other pillar with its network was similar. Remember when they built it? The gold, the silver, and the bronze? Now there's no gold, there's no silver, there's no bronze. It's all gone, it's all undone, and everything's been torn down. 
you feel like there should be some judgment to come on Babylon for this, right? They're attacking the temple. And there will be. The book of Habakkuk tells us there will be. But Habakkuk also tells us that this is judgment on Judah. And it's devastating. Verse 18. The commander of the guard took his prisoners, Sariah the chief priest, Zephaniah the priest next in rank, and the three doorkeepers. Of those still in the city, he took the officer in charge of the fighting men and five royal advisors. He also took the secretary, who was chief officer in charge of constricting the people of the land, and 60 of his men who were found in the city. And what did he do with them? Abudzaradan, the commander, took them all and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. There at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, the king had them executed. So Judah went into captivity away from her land. That is one of the saddest sentences in the whole Old Testament. This afternoon, you should read the book of Lamentations to see how Israel felt at this very moment. There's a whole book in our Bible just to record how sad they were about this event. We are missing what God has to say to us if we don't feel some of the sorrow of this tragic moment. So Judah went into captivity away from her land. All those promises. Verse 22. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, appointed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, to be over the people he left behind in Judah. He's not a king. He's a governor, and he's not a son of David. There is now no son of David on the throne in Jerusalem, in Judah. When all the army officers and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah as governor, they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, Johanan, son of Kareah, Sariah, son of Tanhumeth, the Netophathite, Jaazaniah, Jaazaniah, the son of the Maakathite, and their men. Gedaliah took an oath to reassure them and their men, do not be afraid of the Babylonian officials, he said. Settle down in the land and serve the king of Babylon and it will go well with you. And that's the message that Jeremiah sent to them as well. If you read Jeremiah 29, verse 25. In the seventh month, however, Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama, who was of royal blood, came with ten men and assassinated Gedaliah and also the men of Judah and the Babylonians who were with him at Mizpah. At this, all the people from the least to the greatest, together with the army officers, fled to Egypt for fear of the Babylonians. Everything, everything has fallen apart. The worst thing ever has happened. God has in His righteous anger destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem, and sent Judah into exile. If you want to know more about this, then read the last few chapters of Jeremiah. And all of Lamentations because you really feel just how terrible these events truly are. We skip over them. I, I hardly ever notice this when I'm reading my Bible, but this was so big for the Jews. The anger of the Lord. One more. Just a little glimmer of light. But on a dark day, a little glimmer shines bright. Number four, the grace of the Lord. Look at verse 27. 
In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, remember him? In the year Evil Merodach became king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's son, he released Jehoiachin from prison on the 27th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king gave Jehoiachin a regular allowance as long as he lived. So that's where I get the title for today's message. Verse 29, the king's table. On the one hand, it's a table of dishonor and defeat. Jehoiachin is in exile and has no power or authority in Judah. He's reduced to living off of the king of Babylon's table. But I also think there's a ray of hope here as well because of how he's treated. This guy has been in exile now for 37 years. He's been living as a prisoner. He actually outlives Nebuchadnezzar, right? It's weird to think about this, but Daniel is at work in this kingdom as an official this whole time. And his king is in this prison this whole time. And until... 37 years after he was sent into exile, he's called up, he's given new clothes, and he's treated kind of royally. He's a son of David who is treated as the rightful king in exile. I think there's some grace here. I don't think you're supposed to get all excited about it because the main thing we should be feeling at the end of 2 Kings is sadness and sorrow and lamentation. But the author of Kings wouldn't have to give us this little story. He gives us this little glimpse. Seeing this old king, this thumbs-down king, being given a seat of honor and provision at this pagan king's table makes me think that God is still at work. God is still keeping His promises, including the promise of a Davidic king. God is still being kind and gentle and not giving everything that His wayward people deserve. God is still showing mercy and kindness and steadfast love. Do you see that there? And you know what I'm going to say next, right? You've been with me long enough. This also reminds us of a much greater king and his table. The table that we're going to eat at right now. Because when these kings have been at their best, they have reminded us of Jesus. But when they've been at their worst, and they've been at their worst, they remind us of why we need Jesus. Why do we need Jesus? It's because of the eyes of the Lord that we need Jesus. We have been evaluated and found wanting. It's because of the Word of the Lord that we need Jesus. God has promised to punish sin. It's because of the anger of the Lord that we need Jesus. Because the wrath of God, the anger of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. What happened to the temple, what happened to Jerusalem is a shadow, a picture of the judgment to come. The anger of God poured out on the disobedient. That's why we need Jesus. And that's why He came. This table 
represents the cross where the King of glory took on our sin. He was, we just sang it, He was forsaken. He was condemned in our place. Jesus absorbed the righteous wrath of God and He turned the ultimate tragedy into an ultimate victory for all who were put their faith in Him. This is the table of the King of Kings. Hallelujah. What a Savior.